one of the key practices or understandings that needs to be developed in policy development and organizational life and in governance arrangements is is the practice of deframing. So we are we are trapped tremendously by a lot of language and concepts that are no longer valid to our circumstances. Hello and welcome to Planet Critical, the podcast for a world in crisis. My name is Rachel Donald. I'm a climate corruption journalist and your host. Every week I interview experts who are battling to save our planet. My guests are scientists, politicians, academics, journalists and activists. They explain the complexities of the energy, economic, political and cultural crises we face today, revealing what's really going on and what they think needs to be done. These are the stories of the big picture. Go to planetcritical.com to learn more and subscribe. My guest this week is Ray Eisen. Ray is a professor in systems at the Open University and the president of the International Federation for Systems Research. Ray joined me to discuss systems, but what we ended up speaking most about was language. Language which creates systems, language which is the tool we use to understand systems, language which is the frame through which we understand concepts that then become real in the world. Throughout the episode, Ray emphasizes the importance of relational dynamics, that systems are not linear, and that our compulsion to understand the world linearly is baked into our methods of creating knowledge, sharing knowledge, governance, even the alphabet itself. He talks about metaphor theory, how metaphors can be used to reveal and conceal the world. He talks about participating with language to deframe the world as we see it, as in to better understand the language that we are using that places concepts onto the real world that makes us see it in a certain way and try to see it otherly try to see it for what it is. We talk about the limitations of language, how it obfuscates meaning, and the different tools that we can use in addition to language to elucidate, whether that be systems diagramming, systems mapping, collaborative processes, participatory processes, social learning. And finally, we talk about how to begin by starting somewhere different in relation to the world crises that we face the action that must be taken, the failings of institutions to combat, to mitigate, to change, to update, the grip of the system that we seem to be in, with Ray suggesting that it is time to change, recreate, rebuild the very foundation blocks of the society, of the system that we live in, from practice to governance to institutions. I hope you all enjoy the episode. If you do, please share it far and wide. And if you're loving the show, support Planet Critical with a paid subscription at planetcritical.com. By signing up, you'll get the Planet Critical newsletter inspired by each episode delivered straight to your inbox every week. You'll also have access to the wonderful Planet Critical community who are full of inspiring thoughts, ideas, critiques, and determination. I'm so grateful to everyone who chooses to support the project. I'm a vehement believer in ad-free and open access content, so Planet Critical wouldn't exist without the direct support of the amazing community. Thank you so much to all of you who believe in Planet Critical and keep the project going every week. So you were saying that you wish more people were interested in systems. And I think it's because the, the entry point is just so high, like the language that is used to discuss systems and system di- uh, system dynamics and system feedback loops and all that stuff, you know, for most people, for laymen, doesn't really mean anything. 
Yeah, well, that's true. But I wonder if um, historically the people involved in systems haven't headed off in the wrong uh, language trajectory. I mean, if you um, if you start by asking people to reflect on experience of being humans, being parents, living in an organization, you can start, particularly if you do it interactively rather than dialogically, uh, you can begin to create experiences where some of the system's concepts become apparent and then you've just got to give the language to the concepts rather than starting with the language first. What do you mean to do something interactively rather than biologically? Uh, dialogically, not biologically. Di I mean, oh, using, no. talking at people as opposed to inviting them to experience things in a particular way. So, um, I mean, one simple device, if, if I'm forced to give a lecture to a group of people I haven't encountered before, I don't like giving lectures. I'd much rather run a workshop or an interactive session. I invite them to turn to the person next to them and uh, explain to them how uh, walking arises as a practice. If I invite people to talk about how walking happens as a practice, then 99% of the answers to that question will be in um, deterministic cause and effect way. Something happened which motivated me to put one foot in front of another, etc., etc. or I was, uh, uh, etc. And they mm. fail to conceptualize walking as the relational dynamics between a body and a medium such as the floor or a path or something nature. And if you break mm. the relational dynamics, then walking as a practice doesn't happen. So my granddaughter is on the cusp of walking at the moment. And walking is not, it's how she can maintain those relational dynamics between herself, her body, and the or the medium she's in that gives rise to walking as a practice. Walking is an emergent property of the relational mm. dynamic in those situations. And most... Mm. So the reason 90% or more of people give the answer they give is that even those who think they're pretty good at systems thinking are stuck essentially in a linear, systematic, causal mode of being. That's what mm -hmm. our education develops for us. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you think back, uh, if you examine childhood, uh, the... Um, relationship of uh, mammals, how they behave. Well, you've got in utero um, relational dynamics, of course, with, with mother-child relationship. Then you've got births and suckling, and suckling is a relational dynamic uh, that involves key relationships. And um, if you ever look closely at what happens when uh, parents and children interact around the concept of language, then um, it is, again, a constant interactive relational dynamic. And um, the concept, say we, we want to use the 
concept, I don't cup. Mm. You'd say cup, cup, cups in a picture book, and you point to a picture in a, in a book, say cup, cup, or something like that. And the process of language development uh, is such that it's only through the repetition of the relational dynamics and using the language and the cup that the cup arises. And then eventually the child gets to a state where they accept that the object exists and it is called cup. And then it settles and stabilizes. But, and this is how our language traps us into the idea that the object exists pre-language. Hmm. So, and we we forget just taking all of that interaction to get the concept cup established. It still goes on through life. We forget. We forget. We invent terms. We invent neologisms, and we it takes time, and we have to read and engage with others, and hear and listen, and all of that sort of stuff. And and then we imagine that these things existed somehow independently. So we forget that uh, language um, is a uh, is a technology that uses us, and that particularly the difference between nouns and verbs is really critical. And we in the West and the Western intellectual tradition is stuck in sort of Abrahamic uh, noun-based languages. When you think of other Indo-American languages, that uh, I mean, Hopi Indian. Uh, all of the languages in terms of verbs. So their living existence is a constant relational dynamic mm-hmm. of doing in the worlds they inhabit. And so mm-hmm. I run an exercise with PhD students, mainly, well, there's always a range of people from different backgrounds and cultures and everything, and many people speak up to six languages. And I invite them to think about or to answer the question whether they themselves feel that they are a different being when they're operating in a different language, in different languages? And the answer is always yes. Mm-hmm. Your, your being is, mm-hmm. is constructed by the language mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. 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 This is This is related to the Sapir Whorf relativist, linguistic relativism, isn't it? That, you know, we yeah, use well, the language Wolf, use creates the world. Yeah, mm. Whorf is part of the background of this way of being, but it's my main influence is Chilean neurobiologist Umberto Maturano. Yes. Um, who so, makes sense for how uh, the language uses us and we use language. So I would, I would like to, I would really like to talk about that because this is something I have written about and thought about for about a decade. Um, just as a, a kind of intuitive feeling that language is sort of this, it's, it's like a, to use Heideggerian terms, you know, a being unto itself. Um, and we are in relation with it. It's not just that words are signifiers for things, but words are alive and they want to be with other words and they get excited to express things. You know, I'm speaking as a, you can speak as a poet here. <laughs> um, sure. And that, that's always felt very, very real to me. Um, so could you walk me through more of that in your research, that language, or your thinking that language is a technology that uses us? 
Uh, well, there are several strands of my sort of research that um, apply. I've done quite a lot of work on metaphor and metaphor theory um, in the tradition of Lakoff and Johnson, really. But um, Sorry, could you, what is that? Uh, are you familiar with the work of Lakoff and Johnson at all? No, I'm not. Well, the cognitive theory of metaphor about how metaphor uh, language operates in metaphor. All our language is metaphorical and metaphors come in a system and evoke a system in their use. And I, I got into this early on, well, way back when uh, prior to doing my doctorate and all of those sort of things, when I had aspirations to um, work in development and developing countries and then couldn't get a job because I didn't have any experience and then um, went traveling, uh, visited a number of development projects, and did a PhD in, in fieldwork in Bali and in Indonesia and um, came to realize that many and most development projects didn't work very well because they were shaped and designed and developed in those days in particular by the worldviews and in the language of the would-be developers, not into local language, local terms, local concepts, etc. Mm. Um, this was all part of a... Um, a lineage of um, understanding in Western science, which is sometimes called the linear model of knowledge production. Scientists, someone produces knowledge, knowledge is reified, that new knowledge is then extended to someone else or rolled out to others or reproduced. And um, there's whole, um, in, particularly in agricultural research and development, these are in the CGIR network internationally. This, these models are still highly pervasive, but they're very flawed and they're based on mistaken notions of, uh, well, I, if I think of what it is to know, mistaken notions of how human communication operates biologically. So... Um, before I go back to metaphor and, and um, some of those things, I mean, we should establish that that in this conversation, you have a, a tradition of understanding out of which you are speaking and listening, as do I have a tradition of understanding out of which I am thinking and listening. And all we have in common is our ability to use the English language ways, but there's no way I can guarantee that anything I'm saying be understood by you in the ways that I may desire, unless we have a long ongoing history of conversation, and then we can perhaps say, ah, we agree, or I understand you. So we forget that um, in the words of a uh, Linguist has been influencing, well, I mean, a cybernetician systems um, theorist called Klaus Krippendorf, who was the Jeffrey Bateson professor of um, linguistics before he died, 
or communication at the University of Pennsylvania. He would, uh, he's written a very nice paper about the major metaphors of human communication. I think he would find there are about seven major metaphor groups in, that inform human communication. And there's only one, in my view, which relates to how communication operates biologically. And that group, he terms the dance ritual metaphor cluster. So conversation is essentially a dance, like a dance, a turning together. So it's about a dance with a partner or a dance with yourself if you're reflecting. Uh, whereas most of the other you know, metaphor groups are influenced by, um, uh, by war, by uh, technology, by Shannon and Weaver, by the mistaken notion that we can actually transfer information from one person to another, etc. Et and these are all highly problematic metaphors. Mm. And they, but yet they dominate, they're the dominant metaphor and they particularly, I mean, as an example, <laughs> my university, the Open University was set up back in the late sixties, uh, early seventies with a very strong commitment to sort of active pedagogy and influenced by systems, understandings of uh, learning, etc. And we, in some of the conversational work of Gordon Pass influenced that work and we understood that to design a learning experience for someone was about how you embedded material into the life world of the learner and made those concepts useful and alive and experienced by the learner in their world because these students are studying at a distance, the university being a distance learning institution. But then um, over time, many of those early people left. Um, Others came along and we had a vice chancellor who uh, was appointed from uh, Microsoft and then a vice chancellor who had been the head of the world service in the uh, BBC. And these brought with them understandings of information as dissemination, as content and merely get delivery. And so as a university, uh, designing learning experiences for uh, students, we uh, we lost a tremendous amount of, uh, in my view, capability and a lot of distortion and abilities to provide meaningful learning experiences. Mm. But these uh, these um, are pervasive and dominate. Let's let's talk about the the reification of knowledge, mm -hmm. um, as Good you said, this, this linear model of knowledge production and knowledge is then reified and reified means to make something real or make something an object. And we see this all the time in the world, these like language games, you know, of, um, growth, the model of growth being something that was sort of invented less than, you know, a century ago and now to most economists to talk of any other model is like antithetical to the world order. It just doesn't make sense to them. Um, the concept of a nation state even, uh, and we create these like false boundaries, these false borders and, and live within them as if they are real. Um, what 
what are the language games happening there and how can we use the tool of language and change our relationship, change our system to the tool of language in order to create new modes of of knowledge production that allow for uncertainty, that allow for liminality, that allow for different modes of being that can kind of break us out of this very dangerous um, framework that we're in that, well, is destroying the planet. Absolutely, yes. Um, well, as Ed Store and I wrote in our book in 2020, one of the key practices or understandings that needs to be developed in policy development and organizational life and in governance arrangements is, is the practice of deframing. So we are we are trapped tremendously by a lot of language and concepts that are no longer valid to our circumstances. Uh, and that, I would contend, includes knowledge in the way uh, knowledge is uh, as reified. Uh, but there are many other metaphors, like the other metaphors of human communication. I mean... Just the simple phrase of getting the message out or rolling out a policy. These are uh, metaphors that are quite, that don't work, that are completely disabling. Um, there are language and metaphors built into our policy arrangements, um, like the idea that a particular policy this is a sort of Weberian notion of, of how administration should be set up and that it, all citizens should be entitled to the same policy as anyone else. Whereas, I mean, that was built in a world where people believed that there was both stability and you could be equitable in delivering a service or a, a policy across all places. But we know that places are variable and, and we need a, to move to a much more contextual process and we need to be able to understand what we do when we reify as a means of uh, deframing a classic example of um, a trap is the word ecosystem and a British ecologist Tansley formulated the term ecosystem in 1933 he wrote about it in a paper uh, and said that we ecologists need a concept that we can use to better do our work. And he proposed the concept ecosystem. So this was a concept to understand the world in which an ecologist worked. But we now live in a world where a concept to do work becomes a thing in the world which is mapped, quantified, described. You set up the Millennium Ecosystem Assessment exercise and you waste a huge amount of global resource doing things which have made no difference to actually the quality and the health of what we call ecosystems. So we, we get stuck with the traps of reification. And as Etienne Vienna would argue in his book about communities of practice, you need to um, have a, uh, a duality between participation and reification. So deframing is an act of participating with language to undo its reification and to deframe. And you either have to kill it off, 
kill off the de- the old language and invent new ones, or be aware of the in, what in metaphor theory is called entailments. Metaphors carry theoretical entailments, which have implications, and uh, metaphors can either reveal or they can conceal as well. And kind of a, a deframing interrogation is to explore the revealing and concealing features as well as the theoretical entailments. So we can use, we can change our relationship to language yes. in order to yeah. use it as a, t- right, okay. I, I know, I mean, quite simply, I mean, and this is where, say, the work of Peter Checkling, the, uh, another influential person on my work, a professor of systems who's now in his late uh, 80s, um, he developed soft systems methodology. I mean, the really interesting aspect of soft systems methodology as an approach to engaging with complex, uncertain situations was that you think of things not as systems, but you construct or frame them as human activity systems in which you try and understand what the activities are that either make the system or stop the realization of a system. And his uh, modeling language for understanding such situations is to merely use all the verbs in the English language. So activity modeling in terms of verbs flips you out of constantly focusing on things as typified by. Okay. Because certainly there seems to be um, a a real problem (laughs) with our Abrahamic languages and with our alphabet and the way that we linearly construct words, one letter after the other, one word after the other. And I was reading um, some Alan Watts a few months ago, and he was talking about the difference between linear language and, and ideograms and how ideograms help you. They, it's immediately a big picture. You don't construct the word. You grasp the meaning by looking at the entirety of the picture. It cannot be cut up into, into little bits, otherwise you, you miss the meaning. Um, and I was astonished to, to sort of stumble across that and think oh god even baked into the symbols that we use to reflect our language is this sort of plodding linearity that um conceals the complexity of the world that that we live in and the world that it is trying to reveal to us no well i agree i mean in, and we at the open university in our system where we've been teaching systems thinking that's a over 50 years, we realized this quite early on, not that I was there 50 years ago, but uh, that my uh, predecessors realized that to engage with situations where something is at issue or it's a mess or where some people might choose to frame it as a wicked problem uh, or use such language to frame the situation, the best way, one of the best ways to engage with such situations is to do through what we call systems diagramming. We have a range of diagramming techniques that we use and develop for students to engage with situations with um, systems maps, which in their use enable you to explore how different elements in a situation might be best understood as grouped together to create what we might call, or to conceptualize, not to create, but to conceptualize 
systems and subsystems or sub-subsystems in terms of the way things are aggregated, clustered together, in how, thing, how boundary judgments might be made, where do you put a boundary around the situation such that it could be seen as a system. Uh, uh, multiple cause diagrams, how do you get causality going in different ways? How do you get feedback loops going in positive and negative feedback ways? How do you use rich pictures which may reveal metaphors, which are like ideograms uh, of a situation in which you reflect elements, people, emotions, and other things in situations. So these different forms of diagrammings are, particularly if they're done uh, in pairs or, or threes, and the diagramming is done collaboratively, used to mediate a conversation, uh, then you get uh, people's understandings out into the conversation rather than stuck behind language. Language obfuscates what we really think. A classic example is um, uh, the term complex adaptive systems. Complex adaptive systems was coined as a term some time ago. It's particularly strong used in the Resilience Alliance and in the Resilience uh, Framework. Um, but again, it's... Um, it's largely become reified, a bit like the concept ecosystems. And I was in the home of the concept in Stockholm at the Resilience Alliance, and I ran a brown bag uh, lunchtime seminar, and I asked the, all the people present to do build a, a diagram, a conceptual diagram of a complex adaptive system. Well, those people present who are using all the same language came up with at least seven different variations of what the complex adaptive system could be understood as. So when we use the same terms, we are still often talking past each other. And that's why diagramming, um, uh, metaphor exploration, exploring the revealing and concealing aspects of metaphors are ways to uh, get us in the same uh, broad space in a conversation. We also use diagramming techniques called conversation mapping, which around a sort of central question. And this can be a device for rather the linear model of knowledge transfer. If you've got research, as we had, say, in a piece of research and work we did in Australia where researchers were trying to understand what could what the elements of a water-sensitive city would be and, and what, how that might be uh, reported back to people in all, each of the major cities in Australia. And we designed a series of events, two-day events, with all the major stakeholders in each city, which we devised by those means, who came together for table-based inquiries around the concept, how could my city transition to a water-sensitive city. So this was, and we positioned people from different disciplines, different uh, backgrounds who we knew didn't talk with each other much in the city. Uh, and we had a particular way of contracting to, as a way to behave together, uh, to speak and to use the diagramming device. And then we had researchers present their results. And rather than 
the results being in a way told to people, they were presented as as in input into the learning process of each of the table-based inquiries. And so the people discussed it, internalized it, uh, made sense of it in the context of their own city and built strategies for action. And that's a process we've done a lot of research on, call, which we call social learning, uh, where we understand social learning as a, uh, a, a dynamic process by which people with who have or are building a stake in an issue work together and in the process of working together shift their understandings and their practices towards concerted action, which they take together or in some purposeful way. Sounds like deliberative democratic democratic practices. It's it is somewhat similar. Yes, yes. There are, mm. except that it's um, it's grounded or in a particular sort of different theoretical tradition than other things. Mm. Many, to an outside observer, there'll be many things that you'll see in common, but there'll be some differences. You know, in what everything that you're saying, I'm also hearing this. Um, impetus almost that we need to slow down all of this works this work all of the, these ways of working of, of not just relying on language but using language and diagrams and collaborative processes it all points to the need to if, to grasp at the complexity of the systems that we're encountering we need to attempt to slow down at least in order to feel them out and use different ways of of engaging with them almost as if like the linearity of the language um, that we use, which creates the linearity of the systems that we're uh, embedded in, have this like acceleration almost. And I noticed the speaking English, because uh, I also speak French, and English, you know, is a language of, of contractions. And I used to say to my French friends, you know, my grandmother says, I'm going to do, I'm going to do the shopping. My mother says, I'm going to do the shopping. And I say, I'm going to do the shopping. It's like every, everything is just contracting and getting faster and faster and faster and faster. And in French, they don't really have that. You know, kids speak the same French as their grandparents. There isn't this sort of urgency um, to, to, to progress or to, I don't know, even like to break out of the shackles of language. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but there's an urgency behind the English language, an acceleration almost. Please. Well, at one level, I, I mean, I agree with you. The, um, it is, is it, I mean, what are, what are the circumstances that give rise to that phenomenon? Is it, um, is it the context in which we are raised and, is it the advent of social media? Is it, uh, or is it um, that we fail to frame the circumstances we inhabit in appropriate ways and acknowledge the complexity of, uh, and uncertainty of what it is that we have to deal with? We we are too seduced by the ideas of certainty and um, uh, objectivity and. Uh, I mean, what COVID showed, but certainly what climate change demonstrates to us is that we, I mean, no nation in the world understands what has to be done, really. 
we are learning our way into a future which has never existed before. And to use our understandings and our institutional arrangements that we invented for a world that we no longer inhabit is a rather foolish thing to do, in my view. And no more is it, nowhere is it more foolish than in the um, so-called constitutions of countries. Um, we, um, I mean, the idea that Britain doesn't have a constitution, that it's done by protocols and precedents, well, I mean, look what the last couple of governments have done to that. I mean, the, if I, I try to use these social technologies, or, or I mean, these institutions like constitutions and, and refer to them through the lens of uh, technology theory, because I think they play a mediating role in our relationship with the world. So if you think of a constitution as a social technology, an invention, when the Australian Constitution was invented in 1900, the American Constitution much earlier. Now, if, if, um, if young people just thought of those in terms of the latest model car, you know, yeah. would, would these cars still be roadworthy? They're, they're not roadworthy at all. And uh, we fail to then, we fail, fail to grasp the extent to which institutions, historical institutions, uh, tie us in to such a limited range of possibilities. And so therefore, whenever we use language inside those hidden frameworks and scaffolding of our existence, we are hugely constrained. So should we be trying to reframe, reorganize, remodel, recreate our institutions. Absolutely. Right. So rather than thinking about re uh, remodeling the the economy, because that's one that comes up a lot, the remodel the economy, um, degrowth, and I'm a, I'm a big proponent of, of degrowth. Um, but there's actually another step that we could take, and it's not just about changing, you know, your 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 voting system or the parties or whatever, but actually changing the institutions, and then the change would ripple out through the system from that. Well, the the point I've arrived at, I mean, and this is through a long process of involvement, participatory activity, social learning work. Uh, I mean. I described what I meant by social learning earlier, but we, we see that there are two concepts, two language concepts, which are very helpful. One is the concept of dualism. A dualism is a pair where one negates the other. So if you talk about subjective and objective, if you talk about someone being subjective, it negates objectivity, objectivity negates subjectivity, uh, brain, body, dualism, you know, etc. These are these are self-negating pairs, whereas a duality is a totality, a whole. So, I mean, a classic yin-yang is a sort of totality, but um, you can understand uh, participation and reification going together as a duality, as a totality. For every reification, you have to have the means of, of undoing the reification, and you can only do that through participation. 
Now, we understand social learning in a duality sense that it's both a process, just like the orchestra is a group of people who come together and create a performance, which is satisfying for an audience, but it can also be a thing in the sense that the London Philharmonic Orchestra is invested in and people pay money to support it and other things of that nature. So it's both a thing and a dynamic. You can think of it in both terms. And so we understand social learning as a, as a social process, and we, can, we know how to do that extremely well. It's, it's, it's not that hard. There's a lot, huge amount of evidence around about how to do it. Uh, but where it's failing is that it's failing as a governance mechanism. It's not invested in as a mechanism in which to govern ourselves. Of course, we still sit in a Westminster system, which is essentially hierarchical and linear with power running up to the minister, at least in the West, or running up to the, the head of the Chinese Communist Party in a one-party state. So the, this is part of the problem in which our actions and our institutions sit. And one of the... Um, if you think about, about our historical governance systems, which were invented before we understood that we were a force of nature and changing whole earth dynamics, Anthropocene dynamics and other things of that nature, before we accepted that as an explanation, um, we have a governance system that generally could be understood as comprising the state, civil society, private sector, the media and the legal system and the governance arrangements were some dynamic or some component of all of those well each of those in itself if you look at look at them in, in detail has major problems uh, uh, this is what ed in my book is about and the system systemic dynamics between them uh are highly problematic because many of the institutions and practices that go to make them up, again, are failing for the reasons we've just been discussing. And there are three central, we would argue, three essential elements missing from that dynamic. One is the privileged place of the biosphere in our governance arrangements. And economics doesn't do that. Economics... Mm -hmm created environment as an externality and it is part being part of the problem. Many indigenous societies create have the biosphere or relationship with land or place as a central feature of the governing discourse or of the cultural identity. We have lost that from the Western intellectual tradition by and large. And so how we relate to the biosphere is um is a key issue uh, because the env environment, saving the environment is not the issue. It's this, what is at issue is our ongoing relationship with the biosphere, the quality of that relationship and the quality of our relationship with each other and the quality of our relationship with other species. So that, those are the dynamics and the systemic dynamics if you go back to my walking example, those are the relational dynamics that are really at stake. Uh, and our institutions don't deal with that uh, at all well. 
And the other one that's missing is um, the technosphere. All the technosphere can be understood as all of that technology and stuff, human invented stuff that we have placed on the surface of the earth. And this can be seen as both conceptual and physical. So the physical stuff is all the bitumen, cement products. I mean, the biomass of which is just about as great as what uh, the earth itself has produced. And of course, there's all the conceptual biomass that we've uh, put on the earth as well. Uh, and we've left particularly um, artifactual technology uh, to uh, innovation and uh, laissez-faire capitalism evolve. So you had this week, this past week, the um, developer of ChatGPT appearing before a, a government body in the U.S. arguing that his that AI needed to be greater regulated. That we've never really come to terms with how we engage socially with technology and its development. So that's the second thing that's missing from our government systems, and the third thing that's missing is the whole question of social purpose. I mean, our current you could never argue that the British Tory party or even the British Labour Party or the other things are capable of uh, bringing a society into an articulation of social purpose. And to be, to leave the economy as the de facto purpose is a very poverty stricken position to be in my view. Mm, mm, yeah, I completely agree with you, of course. Um, and so can we retool these institutions using language? I suppose I'm trying to find the, I, I, I understand this isn't a yeah, good, lot in key, course this well. isn't how systems work. I know, I know. But I suppose I'm trying to find the, the center point of the system or because, because we are in an emergency and uh, many emergencies actually, and we're running out of time. And so if there's a place where people can focus their, their energies um, and try to pull as many levers as possible. What is the bit of the system that we need to be focusing on? Now, I understand that there is an ecosystem of action. It's very important that people are doing things all over it. However, it does seem to be that there's lots of energy being pushed at different places and yet perhaps no entry point even to the most critical uh, points of inflection. Well, there's a key notion in systems uh, thinking and practice, which is about how um, how initial starting conditions are absolutely critical, and initial starting conditions create a trajectory or past dependency, which is hard to break out of. So, if there was one thing that would give us uh, a different uh, trajectory, or we could initiate. Uh, an expansion or an expanding away front of different possibilities is it would be to ask the question to not assume there is a system there in the first place or if to, if to assume that there is a system there and its purpose is no longer valid because it hasn't been re-articulated or reconceptualized, and so the I'm trying to get that we have to create new initial starting conditions when we try to do things differently. How do we begin by starting somewhere different? 
How do we open up the reflect, reflective moment that says we can't continue doing what we've been doing? What is alternative tradition? And unfortunately, most people are, I mean, the majority of, our, of even our scientists and intellectuals are trapped, trapped within um, the language they use and the understandings they use. So creating these reflexive moments or opening up these reflexive opportunities is not an easy thing to do. But we know from experience that continuing to do the same thing doesn't make things any better. And this is, this is where I think, um, I mean, I think it was Sebastian who sent something to you uh, from, uh, and uh, about the paper beyond COVID. Uh, and it's why we trying to reprise the discourse around the global problematique and the French framing that came uh, with Hassan Uzbekian when he wrote about the global problematique in the in about 1970. I mean, he, he was invited to write this by a group of people who felt that humanity was heading in the wrong direction. And these were the precursors to the Hub of Rome. Uh, and uh, Osbekian wrote his report in which he pointed to 49 interacting factors that were only problematic humanity. And um, the report that he wrote is just as valid today as it was then because quite frankly we haven't we've done very little about those 49 and it's got the, the number of uh, issues interacting systemically is much greater than 49 now uh, unfortunately or for uh, the people who were responsible for the emerging club of rome chose not to allow Uzbekian to uh, pursue what he thought were the next steps because they thought it was going to cost more money. They didn't have the money to do it. Uh, they didn't think it had produced the impact or splash that they felt was needed. So they went to um, uh, Jay Forrester and their systems dynamics work and produced the limits to growth model of the world in the belief that this would create um, a bigger splash. Um, perhaps it did, but it hasn't changed anything at all because we're still committed to growth. We still, um, we still live in a world where, even with climate change, effective modelling doesn't lead to uh, the sorts of changes that we need. I think, interestingly, I was just listening to a podcast yesterday on this. Interestingly, the Club of Rome decided also not to pursue the uh, recommendations or or decided not to throw money and create the lab in Switzerland that had been promised to explore the next steps after the, the limits to growth report as well as in what was to be done. So that's interesting. Two important reports authored for them and no money given to pursue either. Hmm. That, and that at about the same time, um, West Churchman and um, Riddle and Weber coined to... Um, uh, wicked and Tame Problems, 73 paper that it was most uh, widely known. But, but again, what Rittle and Weber were doing when they coined the terms Wicked and Tame Problems was they were inventing a term to describe their experiences of being able to act to deal with 
complex inner city urban decay and major problems of planning and other things of that nature. Unfortunately, it, it suffered the problems of reification as well. It be, wicked and tame became a classification problem rather than a practice problem. Mm. And um, the thing that the Club of Rome ran away from was a practice issue. How do we engage in the practice that will transform these situations for the better? How will we put those invent new institutions that support that practice? And how will those practices and institutions be embedded in a governance system that means that we have continuity and we can pursue a different trajectory? So the missing elements all the time is the is the relationship between practice, institutions, and governance. So frustrating um, why humans seem so devoted to reducing or disavowing or destroying their relationships with the world. You know, and I, I, I like to blame Plato and his concept of the absolute ideal uh, that made, you know, this world a, a profane place and created this binary of like human and nature as yes. if we're waiting for some other thing. You know, I was speaking with a friend about this the other day as well. We were, we were literally yesterday, we were walking through a forest together and just sort of blown away by how beautiful it was. And we were talking about, you know, the stories that have led us to, to this point of such destruction. And we were talking about, you know, God, this concept of like the afterlife, you know, like, yeah, 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 we'll destroy, we'll destroy this world, you know, cause, cause heaven and just this concept of heaven. And we were talking about, but even if you think about heaven and how it's been portrayed, it is white, it is sterile. There's a couple of clouds. There's maybe some babies with angels on it. Like the human capacity to imagine beauty, true, nourishing, amazing, you know, the perfect place for us to be is, it sort of fundamentally shows how limited our creative capacity is if that's heaven. And when, and especially when you compare it to the world that we've been born into and the world that we, that we are destroying. Um, yeah. And even actually, even just thinking there, like the, the, the sterility of heaven, as if you can't have anything on you as if you can't be in relation with anything. There's nowhere to, when people think of heaven, there's nowhere to sit. There's nothing to eat. There's, you know, everybody's wearing these sort of like flowy robe things. It's it, as if every individual is there on their own little cloud, completely disassociated from any fundamental, I don't know, physicality or, or nature. It's really bloody stupid. Well, I mean, I'm, I, I'm a glass half empty person most of the time. So I was uh, sort of argue a little sort of glass half full type things. Mm. I mean, there are, there are possibilities emerging in the privileging or the re-privileging of conversations around indigenous knowledge, know, knowing and understandings, uh, which may be a, a new starting position or a start, initial starting condition for certain things, as long as we don't, I appropriate it, as claim it as our own, and B, as long as in the conversation, we are able to take responsibility for the limitations of our own manners of 
being and understanding so that it becomes a reflexive, informed dialogue. I guess you might think there may well be some opportunities in decolonial thinking, perhaps, although I do, I am anxious that perhaps that doesn't go far enough because it's rather simplistic and dualistic often in my experience and we don't take it to the levels that are apparent in the um, colonial activities within China itself or within different parts of Africa or in different parts of Indonesia and other things of this nature. So that tends to um, often uh, restricted in its um, nature and description. Yeah, lots of good stuff happening. Just if some of the, the powerful can get out of the way and let it happen. <laughs> Well, we have a chapter in our book devoted to the whole power of preferential lobbying. You only have to see, we've got a, a comparatively good government here in Australia at the moment. It's refreshing after what we've had. Um, but the party that's in power is essentially captured by the uh, gas industry and uh, are very restricted in what they're prepared to do. Mm-hmm. So much of the world is captured uh, and the governance systems are captured by big carbon interests um, and others. Ray, this has just been wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. My final question for you is, who would you like to platform? Uh-huh. Well, I've given some thought to this. Um, the person I'd like to platform um, and... I make no apologies for it, is my daughter. Her name is Nikki Ison. She has a background in engineering and environmental studies, and she is the head of strategy for a major foundation concerned with the future of funding initiatives to achieve climate change and 100% renewable energy economy in Australia. Wonderful. I would love to speak with Nikki. Thank you so much, Ray. Thank you. Well, thank you for the invitation to talk. I'll be interested to see where it goes and what happens and what emerges. (laughs) If you want to learn more, I've put links to everything over on planetcritical.com where you can subscribe to support this podcast and read the weekly newsletter inspired by each interview. If you liked this episode, leave a review and share it far and wide. If you loved it, choose a paid subscription at planetcritical.com to join the community. As always, my deepest thanks to that community. Planet Critical wouldn't exist without your support. Thank you everyone for listening and for coming on this journey together.